Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Today, I would like to talk with you about what I believe may be a hidden danger in classical Christian education. Uh, before I go any further, therefore, I ought probably to um, put a few introductory <laughs> pointers in place to explain what I mean by that and what I don't mean by that, and uh, just some caveats and uh, some points of uh, clarification. First up, um, I should uh, explain what I mean by classical Christian education. Um, I mean uh, an educational approach that um, has a couple of features. First, a methodological feature in its structure, and then second, um, certain elements of its content. The structural feature is uh, the familiar, to those of you who know anything about the movement, grammar, logic or dialectic, uh, rhetoric, uh, stages, the trivium so-called, where we try to follow the uh, natural God-given created development of a child's uh, mental capacity by first feeding them loads and loads and loads of facts, grammar, then trying to show them how those facts fit together, logic or dialectic, and then encouraging them to creatively engage with that system that they're learning uh, rhetoric. And so, for example, um, in languages, you spend the first few years teaching them loads and loads of grammar and syntax, and then you get them uh, reading loads and loads of stuff and seeing how the language fits together, and then you get them composing and uh, producing their own literature or poetry or whatever it is. Uh, and that goes across all the disciplines. There is a methodological point there which uh, is central to most of what calls itself classical Christian education. And that's one of the key features of it, as I understand it. Now, you will have heard me talk about that with um, Mr. Josh Taylor, headmaster of Granbury Classical Academy. I believe that's what it's called. I always get the name wrong. Now, my apologies to all of you guys up there doing a great job in Granbury if I've got the name of the institution wrong, and especially to you, Josh. Um, but anyway, I've talked to him about that. Uh, you will know from that also that I'm a huge fan of classical Christian education. This is the way that we chose to educate our children, and I don't regret it for a moment. Um, but I do want to talk, as I said in a moment, about um, a potential shortcoming or hidden danger of it. But anyway, that's the first feature of it. It's the structure that is uh, found in, in the way that the whole curriculum is put together. The second feature is a focus on uh, learning for the sake of the beauty and the wonder and the goodness of the things learned. And again, this extends across um, many subjects. But I think it will be fair to say that it particularly finds its uh, raison d'etre in the classical literature and history and art areas of the curriculum where people are encouraged to read the great classics of, let's say, English prose or English poetry or, or get into Latin and read some of the ancient uh, Latin texts in their original languages. They're encouraged to engage with the history of the classical world and the art and the culture of the classical world. So that... Um, feature of the education's content is a prominent feature of classical Christian education. So that's what I have in mind when I talk about classical Christian education. Um, I'm talking about a particular pedagogical structure, grammar, logic, rhetoric, and certain emphases within the educational content um, to do with the, the, the great uh, elements of the history of Western civilization as it's been shaped by the gospel. Now, um, as I've mentioned already, this is the educational approach that I took to 
I chose to take with my own children. Nicole and I don't regret it for a second. We're very sure we could have done a better job um, and that other people could have done a better job in various different ways. But actually, we think that by God's grace, this worked out pretty well. And we're really delighted and thrilled to have had the opportunity to teach our own kids and to learn from many people who've trodden the path before us, particularly in this kind of classical Christian education tradition. But I should also point out that this is not really a partisan thing. As it happens, the two key features of what makes a classical, quote unquote, um, Christian education are actually found in lots of other Christian educational traditions that don't use that label. I'm not really concerned about labels in this context and actually not in most contexts either. Um, but let it just be said that um, many of what are the, are the greatest things about uh, classical Christian education, like that grammar, dialectic, rhetoric, structure, are found instinctively in all kinds of different ways in educational paradigms that don't explicitly label themselves as classical. So, uh, for example, uh, many people who follow, uh, I guess what they might even just call a, a broadly Christian approach. I don't know what, what the label would be, but they're just trying to, they've got some Christian curriculum from somewhere. You'll find that actually, obviously, you spend a lot of time in the early years um, teaching the kind of facts of a subject, like, I don't know, biology. You, there's a lot of observation and uh, and description of the uh, biological world. And then as the child grows up, it's, it's natural as the child's analytical qualities start to develop that you start to explain more and more about how things work. And then when they get a bit older, they start to do their own, um, if they're really uh, into their biology, uh, which as a kid I never was, and I, I regret that because it's a fascinating and a wonderful subject. But if they're really into it, then they start creatively to start exploring for themselves and, and maybe even hypothesizing about how various biological systems work. In other words, What's really good about the structure of classical Christian education is not the label uh, and, and the content of it is found in all kinds of other places. And I don't need to tell you that you don't have to go to what's called a classical quote unquote school in order to read um, great works of literature or study Latin. So in other words, this is not a, uh, uh, an appreciation of or in a moment a criticism of just a label or a partisan school of thought within Christian education circles. What I'm actually trying to do is to highlight something which classical Christian educators make explicit and which I think has some hidden problems. So there's a bunch of introductory stuff, a bunch of caveats, um, uh, and now maybe I can explain what I think this hidden problem might be. Here's how it goes. I think there may be a danger of so emphasizing the significance of learning about the world and its beauty and its goodness and its history and the languages and culture found within uh, human civilizations. Learning about those things for the sake of their own inherent beauty and goodness and wonder and the way that they glorify God, that the employment-based, practically-oriented goals of an education are compromised. And the reason I think this might be the case is because this is actually how some classical Christian educators talk. In other words, one of the things you sometimes hear in uh, people's uh, uh, rhetoric, for want of a better word, um, commending classical Christian education is uh, advertising it, so to speak, on the basis that it 
doesn't just seek to train your kid to do a job. We're not just about producing drones for the factories. We're not just about producing workers. We're about producing men and women who understand and love the creation in which they've been placed and love the creator who put us there and made it all. And I want to say a couple of things about that um, because it seems to me that it misses something. Well, it misses a couple of things. And the first I want to say is I'm not against, far be it from me to say I'm against learning about the wonder of the world in which we live and our history and our culture and our literature and our poetry and everything else for the sake of its own beauty and goodness and for the sake of magnifying and glorifying the creator who put us here. As it happens, as um, many of you may know, in a former life, <laughs> before I became a pastor, I was a physicist. I spent my life probing the mysteries of the interactions between nanoscale clusters of molecules. Uh, water molecules, it turns out, are absolutely fascinating. And sometimes people would ask me, like, what practical use is this research that you're doing? And I've got to say, it was like, well, it might have practical implications somewhere down the line. Lots of things have all kinds of unforeseen practical implications. But we were really doing this work because it was magnificent. It was simply spectacular. And we wanted to make the most precise and the most accurate and the most detailed measurements we possibly could of basic physical phenomena. And ask me about it another time, maybe over a beer or over a coffee or something. So I am very much in favour of the um, thumbs up to learning about the world, learning about literature, learning about culture for the sake of its beauty and goodness and the God who made it there and put it there. Where I have a question mark is what seems to be in the minds of some in the classical Christian education tradition, the kind of thumbs down to the vocational aspect, the thumbs down to um, uh, training to be a doctor, training to be a plumber, training to be an engineer, training to be an accountant, training to be a shoemaker, training to be something. Vocational training very often gets criticised as a kind of flip side or corollary of the uh, big up, th big thumbs up to um, the glorify God in all that he's made and study the wonder and beauty of things for its own sake and for the sake of the God who made it. Now, I think we should be able to say both and. And this really is my complaint. Uh, not quite a complaint. Uh, don't call it a complaint. Let's call it a hidden danger. I think it is a very risky thing to do to start downplaying the significance of training for a job, training for a vocation, training for an actual practical calling within the world. And the reason I think that's a danger is because God has actually called us to do those things. Of course, it's the case that many educational institutions were shaped by statist motives trying to produce factory drones in order to uh, work outside the home, whether they're men or women, to produce uh, taxation income to make the government larger. That might be true in the history of late 19th and 20th century education. But we shouldn't accept a secular state's vision of what education is about, and we shouldn't accept a secular state's vision of what vocational education is about. To put it most simply, here's what, let me boil it down for you. 
I want to say that somebody who trains to be a plumber or somebody who trains to be an accountant or somebody who trains to fix and install air conditioning units or somebody who trains as an electrician or somebody who trains as an engineer or somebody who trains as a doctor or somebody who trains as an interior decorator or somebody who trains as a guy who fixes your roof when it leaks or somebody who trains as a scientist or a computer programmer or any number of those other vocations out there in the world. They are training to do something which is tremendously glorifying to God and tremendously significant for their own future, the future of their family and the future of their churches. Let me shed a little bit of light on um, what I have to say, just some of the kind of theological scaffolding around this. First, let me make uh, an observation about our own Christian tradition. One of the central rediscoveries of the Reformation was the dignity of so-called secular vocations. I have here in front of me a, a copy of um, Julian Hardiman's book, Glory Days. It's quite a good book. It's not uh, without its flaws. It's somewhat amillennial in outlook, um, and uh, I would prefer something a little more post-millennial. In fact, I'd probably prefer something a lot more post-millennial. Um, but anyway, that aside, Julian Hardiman is a great guy. He's a pastor of a church in Cambridge, England, and uh, one of the things he's got... Um, uh, in this book, Glory Days refers to, um, well, the subtitle is Living the Whole of Your Life for Jesus. And one of his points is you don't have to become a pastor or a missionary in order to glorify God. And that was not just him who thought that, that was the reformers. Let me read a couple of quotes that he's got from the reformers and their um, predecessors and the, those who came after them. So here's William Tyndale, who gave his life to translating the Bible into English. I'm quoting here from Julian Hardiman. Here's the quote from uh, Tyndale. There is no work better than another to please God, to pour water, to wash dishes, to be a shoemaker or an apostle. All is one. To wash dishes and to preach is all one as touching the deed to please God. Which is a remarkable thing to say, because what it means is that you could be training to be a shoemaker or training, to, even trained to be a household servant to pour water or to wash dishes or setting aside a large portion of your life to be a mother and a homemaker, or to serve in the home in some other way, and doing quite a lot of these things, is like being an apostle insofar as the potential of that deed to be pleasing to God. And we remember the apostles, right? We remember them as men who served the living God in dramatic and decisive ways. And William Tyndale, or one of the reasons that was listed for his being burned at the stake was his insistence that yeah uh, in principle a godly mum a godly homemaker a godly shoemaker and if he'd lived in our age he might have said a godly software engineer uh, and a godly uh, roofing uh, uh, technician are able to please God no less than an apostle is. Here's William Perkins a later uh, English theologian the action of a shepherd in keeping sheep is as good a work before God as the action of a judge in giving sentence or of a magistrate in ruling or a minister in preaching. Same themes. And here's Martin Luther. <laughs> yeah, Luther gets in on the act. Well, no surprise. It looks like a small thing, says Luther, when a maid cooks and cleans and does other housework. But because God's command is there, that is to say, because this person is doing these things uh, in a spirit of faithfulness to the living God. Even such small work must be praised as a service of God, far surpassing the holiness and asceticism of all monks and nuns. And of course, 
the reason he thinks that is because uh, monks and nuns um, have no business being monks and nuns because it, it's kind of hard to find monasteries in the Bible. Um, he continues, seemingly secular works like household work are a worship of God and obedience well-pleasing to God. So um, that's um, some of our Reformation heritage. Now, what that, just think about what that means. Uh, what that means is when we're saying it is a tremendous and wonderful and good and glorious thing to spend your days or maybe spend several years reflecting on the riches of our Christian uh, literary heritage or on Christian theology or on the, the poetry of Milton or on the great works of Latin literature or on the Elgin marbles, the, the great glorious stone carvings in the British Museum, all those um, wonderful fruits of our classical Western, Western Christian heritage. When we're saying it's a wonderful thing to spend a lot of time reflecting on those things, we must not say and it's less of a good thing for somebody to go and train to fix leaky pipes or for somebody to go train to fix broken air conditioners or for somebody to go train to program computers or, or design airplane wings or whatever else it is they're doing. Uh, if those guys are right, and I'm convinced they are, we've done the same thing that we do all the time where we jump on this pendulum and swing from one ludicrous extreme to the other. We've jumped on the pendulum at the point where the civil authorities are telling us well, everything must be about technical education, really, because what they want to do is to uh, in inject more worker drones into the workforce so they can pay more income tax. We've jumped on that and we've swung right the other way and we've, ref we've been reflecting on, well, what's the other purpose of education? Well, yeah, like to know and love the creation and its creator. And what we've done is insisted that we must have this latter point and not the former. Why can we not grow up a little bit, frankly, and be mature enough to say, that it is a glorious and wonderful thing to do both. I would like our plumbers and air conditioning uh, engineers and software engineers and doctors also to be men and women of letters, to love poetry, to love, certainly to love the scriptures and to love the Lord who speaks there and to love the, the heritage of Western civilization and to be versed in uh, classical economics and history and art and architecture. I'd love that. And I don't see any reason why you couldn't be. And I refuse to say that because those latter things are good, therefore vocational training is a bad thing. I encourage you then, when you're thinking about education, not to be ashamed of having in mind practical outcomes, remunerative outcomes, Outcomes which orient you towards being able to uh, earn a salary and make a living to raise your family. Because it turns out that if you don't have a job and can't earn a salary and can't make a living, then it's actually quite difficult to raise a family, Christian or otherwise. And on that kind of, that, that forms the, the rocks on which the great ship of the church's uh, inheritance of God promises, God's promises starts to, to founder. You, uh, here we are saying that, um, God is blessing his people in and through the church by promising his goodness to them and their children and their children's children for a thousand generations of those who love him. We've got to put ourselves in a position where men in particular are able to earn a living in order to feed their families. So what you've got to do is this delicate balancing act, actually. Um, probably what it means is even more focus, even more zeal, even more energy and commitment to your education. So you're not neglecting the Latin and Greek.
if you're at a school or in an educational setting that does that. You're not neglecting the classical literature, but at the same time, you're giving some thought to, okay, how am I going to earn a crust for the, for the next 40, 50 years? I actually alluded to this um, in last week's sermon. Last week's um, sermon at All Saints, back on um, September the 11th, um, was uh, entitled, um, I've got it here, Lifelong Lessons for Ladies, and was principally uh, a reflection on the, the lessons that uh, young ladies, and actually not so young ladies, uh, might helpfully draw from the account of the daughters of Zelophehad in um, Numbers 27, Numbers 36, and also in Joshua uh, 16 and 17, Joshua 17, uh, where they're mentioned. Um, but I also hinted, and actually the men found this throughout, I think, that uh, even a, a sermon which is directed principally against the actual life, principally towards the uh, life situation of women is going to have all kinds of implications for men. And one of the points I made is, look, um, the daughters of Zelophehad, well, their situation arises because of the, the inheritance laws in Israel. Go and read the text or go listen to the sermon if it, if it helps you to do so. Just search on the All Saints website, um, uh, Lifelong Lessons for Ladies, or search on YouTube. I think the video is up there now. Um, but one of the points that um, is raised by Israel's inheritance laws is that the land inheritance in ordinary circumstances goes to the men and therefore to the husbands and therefore the women receive what the husbands provide for them. Which doesn't mean they receive nothing, it means they receive what their husbands provide for them. So ladies, pick very carefully and gentlemen, get working because you've got this inheritance of land and it's not going to dig itself and sow crops on itself for you and your family to eat. So I hinted at that point that we would have to talk about this uh, at some stage. The the significant responsibility, especially now I'm talking to you younger men, any any um, uh, young young boys, young men at school or thinking of college or thinking of kind of vocational training, if you're in your uh, teens or 20s, really this is all about um, your calling in particular to be ready to provide for wife and family in the future. So let me just give you, I, I, I don't want to step outside my lane and, and I'm not an economist, but I, I I have learned a fair bit from some economists over the years, and there are one or two even more practical points that it will be worth observing at uh, this juncture, just to flesh out what I mean by this. Um, the first is to say, obviously, there are potential dangers in tertiary vocational education, perhaps less so in the trade schools, um, but certainly in some university settings, obviously there are potential dangers. Let's suppose you think instead of being a, uh, you know, Luther's shoemaker, you might want to be, I don't know, an accountant. Or you might be thinking, uh, I'd like to be a biochemist or something of that kind. Okay, So, so you go, you find a, a university that um, uh, offers courses in this and you have to find a way through the chaotic maze of foolishness and wokeness and and ideological toxicity that is likely to be present at least in some quarters in various educational settings. So you've got to pick your college carefully. Uh, you've got all the questions about how much it's going to cost and the cost benefit in the long term. You know, is, are you going to be able to pay back what you've um, uh, uh, borrowed to uh, fund it? Please don't bank on another uh, uh, forgiveness, quote unquote, it's not forgiveness, but you know, student loans being wiped out by a subsequent administration, as you know, the present one might not even be constitutional. It's unlikely that it's going to keep happening in the future. Well, if it does, Lord preserve us. Anyway, uh, but that's beside the point. Um, you shouldn't bank on loans being written off by some foolish government. What you really ought to do is to bank on getting a job that will allow you to pay it off. And that's one of the kind of 
calculations you'll have to do in order to figure out the best way forward. Um, but clearly, you're going to have to work your way through all the financial and all the ideological problems of going to, let's say, a secular university to study biochemistry. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't go to a secular university to study biochemistry or computer science or accountancy or whatever it is that you're thinking of studying. Why would you not do that? Not as a compromise because you didn't want to do truly Christian education. Rubbish. No, actually as a way of plundering the Egyptians, so to speak, because that Egyptian gold was made by God in the first place, plundering the Egyptians and getting for yourself a really great education so that you can be a great engineer or a great biochemist or a great computer scientist or a great architect so that you can provide for your family really well, so that you can raise stable, faithful Christian young men and women for the next two, three, five, ten, hundred thousand generations. Why would you not want to do that? It is a Christian thing to do. Um, and just to get really nitty-gritty, it's interesting, um, one of the one of the effects of uh, our aversion to that, uh, especially university-based vocational education, has been to encourage uh, some young men in particular to consider starting their own business, um, uh, entering one of the trades, that kind of thing. And I think that's a wonderful idea. I don't think it's a bad idea at all. But let's just, just think about this for a second. What you what you can easily find, let's take an example of, um, well, business, I actually, I, I know a couple of young men doing this, um, uh, mowing lawns. That, that, there's a couple of guys uh, here at All Saints, <laughs> you know who you are, and other people know who you are, who have a business of one form or another um, mowing lawns. That is an outstanding and wonderful thing to do. I mean, what, and certainly uh, it's going to be hard work. It will train you in all kinds of great ways. And there are many other kinds of businesses that I know young people are involved in and, and looking to in the future. Um, and especially when you're young, the money you can make is really good money. But just consider what happens. Let's suppose that you, you have a business of that kind. And, and basically what you're doing is you're selling your time for a certain amount of money. And I don't know how much somebody charges for uh, mowing lawns or fixing leaky pipes or teaching the piano. There's another one. Or any, any of these businesses where basically you're, you're selling your time in order to do a job. Oh, microphone. Selling your time in order to do a job. And other people are paying for your time so that you do that job for them. Let's, but let's suppose, pick a number, I don't know, $50 an hour or $100 an hour or something. Let's say it's $50 an hour. Just make the math simple. And I don't know what you charge if you're a piano teacher or you cut grass. But anyway, um, $50 an hour. Um, well, how many hours a week are you going to do that? Maybe you're doing it um, in your late teens, early 20s. You're doing it 10, 15, 20 hours a week while you're living at home with your parents. You're not married. You're studying as well and so on. Well, then you're making like seriously good money for somebody who's living at home with their parents, not married, not supporting a family, not trying to run a car, not trying to buy a house, not trying to save so they can provide for themselves and their children in retirement. What are you going to do and what particularly is going to happen to your income stream if you just carry on doing that into adult life? Well, you can go from 20 hours a week cutting grass or teaching piano or whatever it is to what 30 or 40 maybe you work really hard you do 50 or 55 hours a week but you're not doing 200 hours a week and there aren't 200 hours in the week you know there is quite a hard ceiling to the income growth you can expect if what you're doing is basically selling your time to a client in order to do a job for them 
even if you are really, really good at um, cutting grass or fixing pipes, you're a really experienced plumber, say, after, with 10 years of experience, well, people aren't going to pay twice as much per hour for a really experienced plumber than they would for somebody who's just starting in the job. So what tends to happen, and this is what I... I wouldn't describe this as a fear, it's just something I've been conscious of as I've thought about the economics of this, is that if the model for your career and your business is basically, I've got a certain number of hours in a week and I'm going to sell those at an hourly rate, your income will top off pretty quickly. And it's quite likely that it won't grow fast enough or high enough to meet the demands of buying property, running one or two cars, being married, raising a family, saving for the future and so on. Because those demands tend to increase much faster. Don't be fooled by the relative affluence you might be enjoying when you don't have many responsibilities into thinking that that affluence will continue with a modestly increased income when you have a lot more responsibilities. Just the math doesn't work out. So what do you do? How, how do you get around this? Well, the, the way to increase your income and therefore your capacity to support and nurture and raise a family and so on and so forth all those things is not simply to add more hours to your week that you're selling for a certain rate the way to do it is to multiply so the obvious example here's how an example would work so that you go from i'm one plumber and i'm selling my 40 hours a week for 50 dollars an hour you go from saying well i'm going to be a plumber i'm going to be managing a business in which I'm employing 3, 5, 10, 15, 30 other plumbers. And as that number grows, you have a team of people managing them with you. And you take a percentage of all that they bring in to the business. In other words, what you do is you find your place within a hierarchy that you have created a business structure so that you have multiple income streams all within that same business framework, and you're receiving a percentage of each of them. You see, what you can do then is that it's possible to multiply your income rather than just adding to it by adding extra hours. Now, this is what you actually do when you join a good company that you don't own. I talked a second ago about a structure that you've built, your own business. But this is what puzzles me and somewhat frustrates me about some of the rhetoric that's directed against the idea of just going out and getting a job at a, a firm around here, you know, Lockheed Martin or one of the many engineering firms or finance firms or any of the other businesses around here. People will criticise the idea of doing that. I can't understand why. Because what you're actually doing is placing yourself in a structure where there is a predefined hierarchy for you to find your place in. And you go in at the bottom you know, and you go in, you probably wouldn't be earning much more or might even be earning less than you could if you were just selling your hours for an hour, hourly wage. But if you're good and you're able to rise within the company and take on more responsibility, what actually happens is that you're responsible for the generation of more income within the business. And that, if you hadn't noticed it, is why managers tend to get paid more than the people who work on the teams that they're managing, because they're actually coordinating income generating uh, personnel below them and therefore they're responsible for uh, and playing a more significant financial part in the, the wealth generation of the company. Now what I'm suggesting to you then is um, whatever the strengths of I'm going to start my own business, I'm going to sell my time, I'm going to do this, I'm going to follow this model of income generation, selling an hourly rate in order to bring in a wage to support myself and my family. Whatever the merits of that, 
do remember it has this fairly low ceiling in practice. And it's particularly low if the skills required to actually do the job are easy to acquire. So, for example, if it's, um, if you're, when you're a teenager, especially a teenage boy, you can probably earn what feels like amazing money just selling your physical strength. I mean, just not much skill, just really hard work. The problem is you're in competition with a whole bunch of people who are physically strong. If all you've got to sell is your physical strength by the hour, there is a very low ceiling to how your income is going to be able to increase over time. And so to think that that's a sustainable long-term model runs the risk of putting a kind of cap on what you can earn in the long term. So what I want to encourage you to do then is back to the education point I was making earlier. Yeah, be working hard at your education, including the, the wonders of Latin and ancient literature and poetry and classical history and art, and also including those skills which are more technical in orientation which will equip you for a vocational element to your education or your training, which allows you to find your place in a workforce where your income and therefore your family's capacity to provide for itself multiplies over time rather than just incrementing with inflation, basically. You can see the point I'm making. Um, instead of just limiting our thoughts by, I want to run this business in which it's just me, Either consider, well, how would I multiply this? How would I grow this business so it becomes bigger? And then, of course, it serves more people, employees and clients. Or how could I find a place in a larger corporate structure that's actually been built by somebody else? And neither of those things would be bad. Certainly neither would be a kind of sellout theologically. Quite the contrary. Going back to our friends um, uh, Wycliffe and Perkins and Luther, they would be reflecting deeply and wisely what the Reformation at one level for many ordinary people was all about. It was about dignifying their lives by saying uh, the living God loves you, values you. Not only has he welcomed you in Christ and invites you to his family and to his table, he, he regards the work you do the other six days of the week as dignified and wonderful and glorifying to him, even though you might just fix shoes, or you might just wash dishes, or you might just program computers or fix leaky pipes or install air conditioning or fill in other people's tax returns. Okay, I think that'll do for me. I hope that's been thought-provoking and helpful. It may raise all kinds of practical questions, and as ever, here at All Saints, Pastor Neil and I are always absolutely delighted to hear any such questions from anybody, especially within the congregation. So if you've got kind of practical thoughts, and especially if you're uh, in that position, young man, uh, young woman, uh, teenage years or early 20s, thinking, OK, so what do I do? What would it be good for me to train for? Or you've got some educational decisions ahead of you. Which college should I go to? I've indicated that there are dangers. There are dangers everywhere on the horizon. Right? But, but simplistic polarized pendulum swing type answers are not going to help us. Uh, so don't hesitate to give me a call, give Pastor Neil a call, uh, let's sit down and think through the particular gifts and aspirations that you have and maybe we can come up with a plan. Um, uh, we, that is along with your parents, can come up with a plan that will be a real blessing to you and Lord willing to your family in the future. All right, God bless. Bye for now and see you soon. Mm -hmm.